Mr. President, they have the ambassador waiting upstairs. Oh, good. Any difficulty? They say he's having a fit about that squad of MPs. Yes, well, that can't be helped. Have him brought down here straight away. Yes, sir. Is, it, is that the Russian ambassador you're talking about? Yes, it is, General. Uh, am I to understand the Russian ambassador is to be admitted entrance to the, the war room? That is correct. He is here on my orders. I, I, I don't know exactly how to put this, sir, but are you aware of what a serious breach of security that would be? I mean, you'll see everything. You'll, you'll see the big board. That is precisely the idea, General. That is precisely the idea. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Anthony. Not a fan of the quantified self-matics? Where do you stand on the idea of a quantified self? That's a great question. I was thinking that a little... Good news. This one's edited. Great. (laughs) I was thinking about that a little bit on the walk over here, and, uh, you know, I think it's kind of a matter of personal choice. I think Well, obviously, obviously, but I'm asking what your personal choice is. I think for me, it doesn't make things more fun and trying to graph and quantify even though you know i love graphs obviously so you'd think i would be all about it but and it, were you into it more in like college when you were really a big fan of like nick felton a little bit but then i did feel like it sort of became too much of a source of anxiety rather than useful information did you ever try tracking stuff about yourself i don't remember ever seeing you like collecting your toenail Minimally, clippings or whatever i mean i oh it's <laughs> only not that i think i used uh what was that website called that nick made Datum? Datum. Datum a little bit for some things, but not not hugely, no. There's so much data that already exists. I feel like we use it because it was like we liked, we liked Nick. We're the like, aesthetics of yeah, it. Yeah, we wanted to use yeah. the cool thing that Nick made, be one of the cool kids. Yeah, I don't I don't have an Apple Watch, and I don't want an Apple Watch or a smart oh, watch. Apple Watch is great. It's a really expensive uh, way to start and stop podcasts and skip ads and start kitchen timers. The skipping ads is kind of appealing, I'm not going to lie. Nice, yeah. Though more and more, I just don't listen to podcasts with ads. I had, a, wow. I had, a, I had one of my podcasts I was listening to a bunch who I will not buzz market, got picked up by like a big network and then just all of a sudden had the most frequent and the most grating, insufferable ads. I had to stop listening. I was like, I just can't. Like, huh. this is awful. I don't want this energy in my life. Still really enjoyed the podcast, but I just couldn't do it anymore. Got to spend hundreds of dollars on an Apple Watch so you can skip them more easily. If they had given me the option of like supporting some Patreon for an ad-free feed, I would have done it, but they didn't have that. Instead, they Damn. were just like, we're going to go big p- podcast network style under the thumb of big podcast anyway i promise we'll never have grading advertisements on this show unless they're parodies that i've recorded to make fun of grading advertisements which are still admittedly grading don't make these kinds of promises how many how many podcasts no, that have I will you promise. heard make that same guarantee uh and, and then none go back on it i don't think i've ever heard it i mean the doughboys jokingly say the doughboys can't be bought even though they are extremely bought mm-hmm. in a lot of ways no I, i'm very confident in that i will never have grading automated ads on this podcast okay ever. well we'll see when i take charge i mean yeah, if i die <laughs> then you know you, you you inherit the lucky paper oh, radio God. mantle and nope. responsibility and you can put whatever ads on there you want that's it that's gonna be the end athletic greens <laughs> oh, squarespace Jesus. harry's razors manscaped manscaped i feel like mm, yeah podcast ads let's not talk about podcast ads our recording schedule is a little weird. We just yesterday recorded the episode where we talked through the rotor draft of the Bud Magic Cube with Scott, Parker, and Steve all in the studio. This will be coming out a week later than that. And we actually sort of pre-recorded with Ryan, you know, 
earlier in advance than we normally do. So it had been a while since we've recorded, and now we're recording very tightly back-to-back, which I think is important because I think in terms of the listener understanding uh, mental space, we are still coming off of our really intense, very busy magic weekend with lots of hosting and cleaning and whatever. And I lost so many games of magic this weekend, Anthony. I played so bad. I mean, can I say I played badly? It's an interesting question. I I lost a lot of magic. I can say that for sure. Mm-hmm. I suspect I played badly, but can't say that for sure. I think I played flawlessly and drafted perfectly, but I, I think I only won a single match all weekend. You played a few less, too, because you were in the middle of hosting. That's also true. Like, yeah. So I've got my cube record spreadsheet pulled up here, which I've referenced on the show before. Ah, so you're Anthony's... quantifying yourself over here. Oh, yeah. That's why the that's why the nickname. I know. The, I, the nickname yeah. connected to the thing. We've mentioned this in passing on the show before. I've mentioned it in passing to you. You've never actually seen the raw data. Here it is, baby. Here's I the, haven't. Yes, here's you've been the raw data. All of your gameplay history, and I have never seen it. It's a, it's a lot of green in that column. Well, yeah. So here's the deal. Look at look what happened oh. this week. This weekend, though. Oh, no. I want to talk about the numbers in this spreadsheet. Talk about what maybe I have learned from it, and then talk about why I am no longer going to be doing it. Okay. Dropping a bomb on this episode of Lucky wow. Paper Radio. We're recording this on June 19th. I started doing this January 1, though I didn't actually play Cube on January 1st, I don't think. I played Cube on January 2nd, so that was the first Cube I played, and this is all the matches I played between those dates. In that time, I played 161 matches and 400 games in those matches, and I think this is in some ways a big number, right? This is a lot of magic, considering that we only play Paper Cube. There actually is one cockatrice draft in here that I was doing to help test about Magic Cube anticipation of being included in KubeCon with some friends online. But aside from those two matches, the other 159 of them were all played in paper. So that's a lot of magic in some ways. But I think if you were to look at like, I remember when they had the Pro Tour uh, a while back, it was the last Pro Tour they played on Arena, where it's like digital Pro Tour or whatever. And they were showing the arena statistics of all of the competitors and just looking at like, oh, you know, so-and-so has played 6,000 matches on arena or whatever, right? Like the amount of magic you can play digitally, I think, really dwarfs what is a lot of paper magic, I think. I mean, I know from listeners reaching out to us, a lot of people are jealous of how much Cuba get to play in paper. So I'm, I'm very lucky to get to play that much. But it's also not a ton in the grand scheme of how much magic one can play if you just play online. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot, but we like to try to live uh, balanced lifestyles and have our hobbies not consume every single free moment of our free time, right? Yeah, let's go with that. Okay, great. Yeah. Over these 400 games and 161 matches, I have almost exactly the same game win rate and match win rate of 56 and a half or 56 and a quarter percent. So slightly over 50 percent, which I think maybe if you would ask me what I expected, this is kind of what I would have guessed. I think my like intuition just from playing every week, every Tuesday and stuff like that was that I feel like I win a tiny bit more than I lose, but not very much. And that is basically what is borne out in this data, though it was pretty wildly fluctuating over the course of the year. So we can see from this rolling win rate graph, rolling match win rate graph, that there were a lot of times in the year where I was hovering around like an 80% match win rate for many matches in a row. And then I also dipped down to 40 a number of times throughout the year, and then this past weekend, dipped down to 40, and then 30, and then 20% match win rate, because this weekend I played, let's see, I played six rotisserie draft matches, as well as two matches from the Curio Cube, four matches from Hillary's Baby's First Cube, two matches from the Neoclassical Cube, and uh, in all of that, I won three matches, three of those, however many that is, it's a lot, and I only won three, which is not great, obviously. 
It's not great. I do wonder how much that, like, it looks like there's a trend there, but I feel like it's not a huge set of data. So I feel like there could no, just be yeah. a lot of noise in it that makes it look like trends that I don't want to read too much into personally. It's also that you're graphing individual games and matches from the same draft. So it could just be that, you know, you drafted a bad deck in one of these drafts and that's still going to look like it's impacting right. a broader trend. I performed badly in this rotisserie draft. I still don't know what was wrong. I mean, I have a couple ideas of what was wrong with the deck, but they seem like very minor issues with the deck. Either way, if we assume that was an awful deck, then yeah, that was one draft that essentially contributed six or maybe seven data points to this graph of uh, looking like I'm playing badly. But I was struck by how much this fluctuated. It's a rolling 10 match win rate, right? So obviously still a very small sample size, but over the past 10 matches means that if I'm just kind of like winning and losing back and forth, more or less, then it would kind of always hover around 50%. But I spent a lot of time up at 80 and then some time down at 40 and now 30 and then 20 as I uh, am stopping <laughs> this tracking. I definitely felt when I was in a valley, right? And felt like I was losing a lot. And conversely, I felt like when I was winning a lot, I could definitely feel a different amount of confidence going into a match or just a different vibe, basically, when I was playing, uh, when I was in these sort of hot streaks or cold streaks, as it were. The other thing I tracked here is the color distribution of the decks that I play. I think this rolling color preference chart is probably completely useless, pretty much. You know, it, you can't really read anything into this, I don't think. Again, like, this is the kind of thing where, like, a roto draft deck that I play six or seven or nine matches of is going to have a outweighed influence on this sort of preference. What really is striking me about this is this summary color preference. So across, again, 400 games, 161 matches, my color preference, I think, was very close to almost exactly evenly split. I was 19.5% uh, green, 20% white, 22.3% red, 19.4% black, and 18.9% blue. I realized I did not read that in Wooburg order, and I'm, in hindsight, frustrated by that. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this seems almost more interesting to me. The win-loss, obviously, there could be trends that could be interesting, especially if we have other sort of you know, things that are going on in your life that might be contributing to that. If it's you're playing in different contexts or with different groups of players, there might be something interesting to see. But looking at what we do have, it feels a little noisy, and I'm not sure how I could draw much useful information from it. This does say something about the way that you draft which is, if we believe it, uh, that you don't have specific color preferences, which I would guess is not the case for most players. Yeah, like on the Discord, people joke that I always love to draft blue-red. And I'll be honest, I, that is probably my favorite kind of deck to play. But when I sit down at a draft table, I, for better or worse, and again, I think we'll talk a little bit about this whole Ryan Sachs episode about forcing, and I was trying to apply some of that logic across this awful losing streak I've been on, so maybe I'm misapplying those lessons, or maybe I'm not the kind of player that can take advantage of them, but I do definitely sit down at a draft of most cubes feeling like I'm open to play whatever. Uh, I don't really sit down thinking I have a strong preference. If anything, I have a preference for, like, cheap spells. I have a preference for having access to a decent amount of removal, which I think having access to a decent amount of removal probably accounts for, like, the slight favoring of red and the slight disfavoring of blue. There's, like, you know, a 4% difference or a 3.5% difference in how likely I am to draft red or blue, and that's the biggest delta between any two colors. But I was a little surprised at how almost exactly equal this was as well, because I would have thought maybe I had a little bit of a preference. But, but yeah, I definitely don't, it turns out, I think. I mean, I think this is as close to equal as you can expect. Like, again, there's some noise here. I, I just finished a, you know, seven-match Naya roto draft. So again, one deck is contributing a lot of data to those three chunks of his pie. Do you think that this data is self-influing itself at all? What I mean is like, uh, so we've talked with uh, the Guardian Project about sort of their tracking of their games. Which, which inspired this entire okay, thing. Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask, because that's sort of where you, where you got that from. But something that they're really clear about is that they don't 
look at the data in an aggregated way at all during the year. And then at the end of the year, they go and like do the processing and see like, okay, well, how was I doing? How was my like win percentage? How was my preference between decks? Things like that. And I wonder, I could imagine, because I know you were looking at this as you went along, were you a little bit feeling preference? Like, oh, I guess I haven't drafted blue in a while. Maybe I'll be more open to that. To be perfectly honest, basically from the moment I started this spreadsheet, that was almost equal and it has stayed equal. So the color disparity couldn't really have influenced me, and it definitely didn't. I never sat down and felt like, well, I haven't been playing white a lot. I better play more white. It just was pretty equal from the start and has only gotten, I think, closer and closer to equal as more and more data has been accrued, which I do think there's something about the fact that I think so much about cube design. So many players have a preference in terms of the archetype they like to play or like the colors they like, whether it's constructed or limited or whatever. And I feel like because I design cubes, and that's my primary way of engaging with magic, I don't have a color I identify with or a color combination I like more or less than others. I just have to find something I love in all of them because mm-hmm. I'm building cubes that have all the colors in them. And so I feel like I found something in all the colors that is compatible with the way I like to play the game. And I think it largely comes from cube design. So I do think that might be something to do with the fact that I spent so much time thinking about cube. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you're a primarily commander player, you're definitely going to focus on the areas of the game that just interest you most. But as somebody who is thinking about the entire system, I don't want to say you don't have that luxury because, of course, you can just design with an emphasis in certain aspects. Oh, I think a lot of people do, yeah. Tweak things in a way. You know, you can take the Mangucci approach of here's the vintage cube and it has, you know, twice as much blue as any other color. Or the regular cube challenge where certain color pairs just don't have a really strong focus. Or the even more extreme of just a color-limited cube that just only has Jund cards, for example. Mm Mm-hmm. To go back to your question about whether it was influencing it more broadly, the only way it was maybe influencing it was I definitely was more conscious of when I was on a losing streak or a win streak because I was actually keeping track as opposed to just having a gut feeling of like, sure. I feel like I've been losing more or less. So you're like, I keep losing, gotta balance, gotta balance these numbers out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obviously always sitting down trying to win, right? Uh, that didn't change that. But I do feel like there's something to sitting down and feeling like I've been losing a lot lately and just kind of starting with a little bit less confidence, feeling like there's a little more pressure to win because you know you've been losing and... I've already mentioned on the show that I think the more pressure I put on myself, sometimes the worse I do in a draft. So, yeah, that was maybe the only way that it would have influenced things. I don't know how the Guardian Project guys can not look at the data halfway through the year. And, again, to do it on, like, a year's time span is kind of arbitrary. Sure. I wasn't, like, obsessing over this spreadsheet. I mostly used it as a way to, like, get better at spreadsheets and making graphs. I spent way more time fiddling with the visualizations and like the parsing of data by different cubes and opponents and stuff to try and make the spreadsheet do what I wanted to do than I did actually like looking at the data and thinking about it in a meaningful way. Then I have breakdowns by cubes and I played, it looks like 25 unique cubes over this first half of the year. And most of that was your regular cube, which is the cube I've played the most and my bun magic cube and then followed by the neoclassical cube, Patrick's Tupelo Honey Cube, then Kamigawa Remastered, and then from there it kind of is a long tail of cubes I've played a couple times, uh, or maybe just once, or maybe just like one game of one, because it was on stream, and we played a single match, and that was all I got to play of it. And the thing that struck me here was that I think the biggest influence over like the win rate that should be disambiguated is that I play the regular cube a lot, and I do pretty well at the regular cube. I It's probably the cube I have the best record in that I have anything resembling... A meaningful amount of data for so like if you look at these top four or five cubes i think the best record comes from the regular cube and it's just because i've played it a whole bunch and we played a lot at tuesday night where there's a lot of new players maybe that haven't cube drafted before or haven't played the regular cube before and so that i think skews all of this right if we just took the regular cube and the bun magic cube out of this i think i'd probably drop below 50 percent win rate across all these different cube drafts yeah. 
And that's, I think, a very relevant point. It is cool to see my cube at number one, uh, but like you said, it does make sense. It's uh, part of the the conceit of it is it's not like super expensive, so I can just throw out my bag and have it as a backup for for cube nights. So yeah, I, I, mean, I cool. love that cube sense. too. I love drafting it. I have hey, many thanks. I have many times requested it, or if it's one of the two cubes that are up at Tuesday night, I'm like, I'm gonna go to the regular. You didn't cube seem pod. too happy about the last one, but we'll we'll work on that. <sighs> that was really rough. <laughs> I, that also contributed to my recent losing streak. I thought that deck was so good. I really did. We'll get to more of this later. Anyway, so that's broken down by cube. I don't really have a cube I do consistently bad at that I play with any regularity. Like, right, it looks pretty even. I've drafted the with... Cascade cube twice and played three matches each time and did not do great in either of those. That's probably the one that has like the biggest... I guess that's, that's not true. So James's Forgiveness cube, I've played two drafts of and only won a single match, it looks like. So I'm not a good Forgiveness cube player. I gotta get better at that. But other than that, there's not really a cube I really struggle at. It's like I'm a little better than average or like, you know, better than 50% of the cubes we play the most often. And then the cubes I don't play the most often, I tend to be a little below 50%, I would say. And again, if you take out those cubes that I play the most often, I think my overall win rate does drop below 50% probably. I could do it, but I'm not going to bother. And then I also kept track of all of my opponents here. And this is a much longer tale. How many different people have I played against? Let's see. Uh, and that is 57, right? Yeah, so 57 unique opponents over the entire year. Again, most of that is like you, Patrick, Aaron, James, people that are like in our regular play group. And this just confirmed things I think I already knew, which is that players like James, somebody I know that is, I think, pound for pound, a little better at Magic than me, and also just beats me consistently, I think tends to draft the kinds of decks that are good against the kinds of decks I tend to draft. Zach Barish has snuck his way here into the top seven people or top six people I play the most, and he's crushed me consistently. So... Definitely kind of confirm those things about like who my uh, my bracket demons are in our local play group. Other than that, this is not, I don't think, particularly useful. People that I play rarely are either going to be people that show up to cube nights very rarely and maybe aren't as experienced. Or for us, it's like SCGCon was happening. We had a bunch of friends in from out of town we were playing Magic with. Or we went up to MagicCon Philly and we're playing a bunch of people that are like big Magic people. And they tend to be, I think, <laughs> very good at the game, and mm-hmm. I tend to lose to them a lot. It's going to be tough to beat out these uh, Justin Parnells and David McDarby's in the middle of this list. Yeah, uh, two people I have not gotten a single win on this year. Only played each of them in two matches, but still, no wins, so bummer. No game wins, even. This is game wins, by the way, not match wow. wins uh, that we're looking at here. So no game wins against McDarby or Parnell. Uh, I think, you know, Barish here. I've never taken a match off of Barish. This is just uh, three game wins to my 11 game losses, so... So yeah, I don't know how much how useful that is, but it was like the data was there. I figured I might as well make that graph as well. I also kept notes relative to each match to kind of look back on. This has been interesting for me just to like remember which decks I liked the most. Like I can more easily point back to like, oh yeah, I remember that deck now because of this like little note I made about it, which has been helpful. Other than that, I haven't felt like these notes have been useful for me. Basically, it's me tracking my punts. It's like I lost this game because I punted, or and this you'll probably two dozen of these 161 matches that I lost because I punted, or at least there was a very obvious punt that affected the game in a meaningful way. Again, to go back to our conversation with Parker from last week, whether that truly affected the outcome directly, it's never. It's always impossible to say, but the notes I have not really returned to and felt have been super useful. So I'm going to stop doing this starting now. Tell me why. I feel like this is the kind of thing that the kind of project that people would sort of peter off on or like mean like not not make a hard break from him be like oh yeah i haven't updated in a week but i mean to get to it all i'll keep it all up to date so i respect that you're making a hard and deliberate break from it 
Why are you doing that? Well, this all started, again, with the Guardian Project podcast. I listened to their year-end episode, you know, at the year-end. I think I actually listened in, like, the first week of January, and then I retroactively went back and added a couple matches I had played before I listened to that episode. And I, I think it's so cool how they track their data in a casual format, right, where they're, they're playing Commander and not CEDH for the most part, and they are tracking their data to learn more about their decks, learn more about their playstyles, learn more about, like, whether they're having... Useful rule zero conversations. Are they able to communicate effectively to their to be opponents the power level of their deck, or do they keep underestimating it and the deck keeps winning? Like the kinds of things they're getting out of it are very fascinating to me because it's not strictly just like I want to win more and like track my win rate. In fact, almost every year Andy Flory's like, I won too much again. <laughs> I should be winning less. Right. It's it's not purely just self-indulgent, self-tracking. They have specific questions they're trying to answer, like things like, do they have decks that are overpowered or underpowered or that they are failing to bring to the right table and have that conversation about what is the power level of the draft? And they actually can answer some of those questions and be like, yeah, I like deliberately tuned up this deck to make it more powerful. And now it's winning 50% of the, the time when I really expect it to be around 25 at the tables where it is appropriate. So they can actually inform some of those conversations better with that data. Sam Black should talk to Andy Flurry and uh, Mike about Commander because I feel like Sam Black would say of Andy Flurry, like, yeah, you're just a good player. You have to get over it. You're mm-hmm. going to win more than 25%. <laughs> That's what happens when you're a good player. And I feel like Andy's always like, I won 40% of my matches again. I guess I'm a bad rule zero person. And it's like, no, maybe not. You could just be good at the game. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. That was the inspiration for this directly. I was inspired by how they were tracking data about casual magic, right? Like, there's no reason for me to track my win rate. I'm playing different cubes. There's all these confounding factors. It doesn't inform any aspect of competitive play in a way that you would typically think to track this data, right? It's all just, like, totally casual and disparate. I'm stopping because it is stressing me out. (laughs) It is making magic ever so slightly less fun for me, I think. And maybe more importantly, I don't think I'm learning anything from this or learning what I want to from this. So the other reason for me tracking this is as I've mentioned on the show before, as we talked about with Ryan, I want to be more intentional about trying to get better at this game that I love. And my first obvious thought was, okay, well, let's track it, right? How can we possibly address this thing, this like skill at playing cube, if we don't at least have some information about it, right? That makes a lot of sense. Right. I mean, that's like a very, I think, base level, like science 101, like you should know the thing that you're trying to affect, right? Like measure it in some way. Right. You can't know if you've made a change if you don't know what you were starting with. Right. And again, per our conversation with Ryan, which you should go back and listen to if you haven't already, win rate is not actually that useful, right? Like I asked him on the episode, given that win rate is meaningless, frankly, when I'm playing so many different cubes against so many different opponents, and I'm only me, right? I only played 400 games. That's not that many. There's just a lot of noise in 400 games of data. How many times did I get mana screwed? How many times did I get unlucky? Whatever. How many times did we miss a rule and, like, you know, the game played out completely incorrectly based on the rules of the game, right? Like, because of all those factors, I don't think what I should do is say, I intend to make my win rate better, right? When I say I want to get better at playing Magic and better at playing Cube... I don't think that will manifest as, over time, my average win rate goes up. I I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> how do you think about getting better if it's not about winning more? What's well, the thing. Okay, I, I, that is the fundamental question, right? And it's the other confounding factor, right, is that I think a great example is Patrick. Patrick started playing Magic with us, like, uh, I don't know, 16 months ago, 14 months ago, something like that. And I remember specifically, like, months and months and months after playing Magic with Patrick, 
we played a match. He beat me, and he said, "That's the first time I've ever beaten you in, in a match." And I was like, "Oh, I had no clue. <laughs> I had I did was not like keeping track at that point. Wasn't counting things. Was not." something I was consciously aware of, but obviously it was something he was thinking about. He was like, I never beat this guy. This is annoying. I can't wait till I beat him. And now Patrick and I go like 50-50, right? We just like continually trade matches back and forth and uh, our records are like pretty equal, which I think is a testament to like, Patrick has definitely gotten better at playing cube since he started playing with us 14, 16 months ago. Definitely. The other reason I don't think you can just say, well, your winner should go up if you're getting better at playing this game is that I'm playing with a lot of the same people week over week. And if sure. we're all just getting better, yeah. then my win rate's not going to go up. It's going to hover around the same thing, and we're all just improving. I think Patrick's improved a lot. I hope I've improved a little bit since we started playing, and I haven't gotten worse. And I think you've gotten better at Magic. We're all getting better at the game the more we play, to some degree. I've been feeling like I've been getting worse, so this actually makes me feel better. I'm just not keeping up with inflation. <laughs> yes, I, I do think there is an inflation. I don't think you're not keeping up with it, but I do think that's part of it, right? Is that we're playing with the same people... I mean, at least, like, I don't know, we could, again, I could actually crunch the numbers here. I'm not going to bother because it doesn't matter. Sure, I mean, that is But if you look at the top four people I've played, it's you, Patrick, Aaron, and James, and that's probably a third of all of the matches I have played. Right. So, in terms of the impact on the data, if all five of us are getting better at playing the game, then my win rate's not going to go anywhere, right? It's just going to stay the same. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think is pretty useful here, is, like, if we are thinking about that feeling of your win rate versus the group of people you're playing against a lot... I would have definitely assumed, like, yeah, it's it's going to go up a lot because there are all kinds of people that come through on our Tuesday nights that you're playing with that are very occasional players. But no, that's not really true. Like, the the bulk is playing with the same people that are pretty invested. I mean, again, 57 unique opponents over that time, which to somebody that plays online, that's going to sound like no number at all. But again, this is all people that have, for the most part, come to Tube Nights on Tuesdays, right? Or I've seen it at Magic Con Philly or SCG Con here in Baltimore. So 57 is a lot. But yeah, most of them are I'm playing once or twice. And certainly playing once or twice, there's no... You can't say you're better than that player because you beat them in a match or two matches, right? That's all noise, basically. So yeah, I think for all those reasons that I wouldn't be able to look at the win rate going up and say, I've done it. I've succeeded in my goal of being better at playing cube. And when I asked Ryan for what I should track instead, if we accept that for all these reasons, win rate is actually not that useful... He suggested that I should make a prediction for what my record would be at the end of a draft and then compare reality to that prediction and basically suggest that, yeah, if you get to the end of the draft and you know you drafted a bad deck, then you should expect to do badly. And that actually is a sign that you maybe have a solid understanding of the game and the draft just went off the rails or you committed to something where you shouldn't have. Like You made a bad decision, but that, that experience can still be representative of you improving at the game if you know your deck's going to do badly or you know what its weaknesses are going to be. Right. Sort of like the next level from card evaluation is deck evaluation away. And like actually understanding and being able to assess decks in their entirety, like adds to a lot of or or speaks to a lot of your understanding of the way that the cards interact with each other and the way that your deck will interact with other decks, whereas just pure win rate is going to be mired in a lot of these other complexities. And I'm bad at this. I we've said on the show before, I if I like a deck, that's surefire sign that I'm gonna do badly with it. This weekend in particular so I, was, I had a bad record of my Roto Draft deck, which was disappointing to me because it was, you know, we spent two weeks leading up to doing it. I'm recording this whole video series about it. It's obviously, like, kind of embarrassing to do really bad in this video series. I recorded a 50-minute video of me talking through all my matchups, explaining why I thought I'd have a good record, and I did not. So that's all a bummer, right? Like, that's I'm not happy about that. And then in all the other drafts I did all weekend, I felt like what I learned at the end of every draft was I was trying to do something synergistic cute thematic and my opponent was just playing like 
two drop, three drop, four drop. No matter what cube I was playing, right? And they were just playing creatures and attacking me, and I was losing. This was I mean, true. You say that, but I thought my two drop, three drop, four drop was incredibly synergistic. I finally got to do a thing with a card that I've seen many times in many cubes and never actually gotten into a deck or gotten into play. This was the Chishiro... Chishiro, some kind of dragon guy that whenever you green, modify your yeah, stuff, make tokens... Green, and red, modified tribal dude. It was cool. Yes, but so the Curio Cube was one example. I drafted like a Rise and Shine animate non-creature artifact deck with five ways to animate non-creature artifacts between Tezzeret's Touch and Black Staff of Waterdeep and Rise and Shine, a bunch of the indestructible bridges, and I had this like very thematic thing going on, and... You just played a creature deck and attacked me. Zach Barry just played a creature deck and attacked me, and I lost. Neoclassical cube. I drafted a, like, again, actually, interestingly, also an artifact theme deck in that cube, which had, like, a couple of interesting synergies. I was tinkering out Bulbas the Citadel. I was doing this, like, big stuff, and my opponents just played creatures and attacked me, and I died. So at the end of the weekend, the last draft of the weekend, I was drafting Hillary's Baby's First Cube, and it's pretty clear to me, like, four or five picks in, that red is, like, very open, and I get, like, a fifth-pick Goblin Guide, and I'm like, I'm just going to draft Mono Red. I forced from that point, which I think is the way you're supposed to force in the Ryan Sachs way of forcing. Like, I got, like, a mid-pack After signal. five picks, that's a fair amount of information. I feel like we're very far on the other side of the spectrum from still calling that forcing. Well, we'll have to have him back on to discuss. Either way, at that point, I just, like, turned on blinders to the rest of what was in the packs. and was like, I'm taking the best red or colorless card. And I think my deck was great. I ended up with what I think was a really great aggro deck. I played four matches with it and won exactly one of them. My opponents Ooh. just had the right thing every time. And so it's like, when I'm really down on myself in Magic, what I feel like is whenever I try and do something, it fails. Whenever my opponents try and do it, it works. And if I, I feel, try and I feel learn... the same way. And if I try and learn from my opponents, like, this whole weekend, I was like, okay, keep trying to do cute synergistic stuff. I should just stop. I just got to play, like, a curve. I got to play a basic deck, attack my opponents, forget these synergies. I drafted this mono red deck, which I think was about as good a mono red deck as you can have in this queue of Hillary's. And then, like, Parker goes, turn one mana dork, turn two, jewel thief. So, three mana, three, three, vigilance, trample on turn two. Which pretty good. Pretty good against the aggro deck, but I have my removal spell, and then he just has Blossoming Defense with the treasure token. Oh, you, love, made. you love to see it. On turn two, he Blossoming Defense is his 3-3, and I'm like, I can't win now. It just felt, and he also had Plague Engineer. It was the whole thing. I just felt like my deck just didn't work, and th that's how I feel when I'm feeling really down on myself. I just feel like everything I try and do fails, and everything my opponents try and do just works, right? Uh, and I feel like I can't learn anything, because if I try and apply that knowledge, it just won't work for me. So anyway, that was a deck that I thought was good i actually didn't think my other decks this weekend were any good i was very like i don't know we'll see how the games play out i didn't have any like real feeling about it and then this deck i was like i think this deck is finally good i even said i think this is the best deck i drafted all weekend you did one and four so you know what are you gonna do with that well i went oh two so and i also thought my deck was pretty good uh, you could have gone two two if you played two more matches though so we'll never know yeah, if possible. your deck was better. sorry <laughs> tracking this is just making magic a little less fun for me and I want to continue to be intentional about my playing of the game. I feel like I'm very intentional about my like cube design stuff. I spend so much time thinking about and documenting our thoughts. That's what this whole podcast is. I still want to find some way to reflect on the games that I play and try and measure some progress, let's call it. Because here's the thing, right? If I'm frustrated myself for not being better at this game, which I am. A lot of days I'm just like, this is my like main hobby. I've played so much Magic. It's a thing I think about all the time. And... I still make these like obvious dumb punts. Like, wh why? Why? Why yes, is that? I see a lot of your notes happen to be made obvious dumb punt. Yeah. 
This is a big thing in the video I recorded with Brian Koval, the coaching session, where it's like, I just keep f***ing up. <laughs> I don't know how to not do it. And it's very frustrating. But here's the thing, like, when would I be satisfied? Like, how few mistakes would I have to make before I'd be happy? Or what does my win rate have to be before I'm happy, right? Like, how good of a player... Because everything's entirely relative, right? Right. Like, I'm never going to be uh, on the Pro Tour scale, right? I'm never going to play enough Magic to, like, be a, like, pro player. Other than that, I'm just playing with my friends, right? And so, like, I guess I'd like to be better relative to the people I'm playing with the most. But, like, I don't even know how to measure where I'd be satisfied with, like, skill level. So, what I'm really trying to do now is I, I would like to focus on learning something from every draft. And keeping track of what I am learning. Because... That's what I feel like is kind of missing from this document, right? Like, I have all these notes, and it's just like, okay, well, this uh, match I lost because I couldn't beat my opponent's Lotleth Troll, and how was I supposed to know that or plan around it? Am I supposed to prioritize exile removal or, you know, toughness shrinking removal or something to get around the regeneration shield? Who knows? Here is where Justin Parnell killed me with Ryu World Warrior. That's the other thing that's pretty common in these notes. Like, this was a card my opponent had that I couldn't beat. Sure. Which is... A way to just remember what match I'm talking about when I'm looking back at this spreadsheet and also just, I think, speaks to the fact that, like, my deck might have been functional, but I just couldn't beat one particular card, and maybe that's a pattern to pick up on. Either way, I don't feel like I'm actually learning anything from this, so... Yeah, I mean, something else that I, I... So I mentioned with regards to, like, the quantified self thing, there being sort of, like, an anxiety about it. And for me, I feel like the anxiety is almost like, well, now I have to live my life in a quantifiable way. And, like, oh, I can't really do this thing unless I can definitely remember it or take a note so I can put it into my spreadsheet. Or, uh, you know, if we start a match now and then don't finish it, do I, how do I track half a match or, you know, whatever? And apply that to whatever else you want about your life. Like, it just puts a weird constraint and colors it in this way that I, I don't enjoy that. But I totally agree also that just, like, what are we actually trying to quantify here? What? How are we judging what's important about this game and being players? I mean, do you feel like this pressure comes from just your own interest in wanting to be good at it? Or do you think it's more of the community pressure that you feel like you have to be a great player in order to be somebody who is also a small celebrity in this space? I think it's partially both. Uh, I definitely am fundamentally very competitive. I always have been. and I can, I can confirm. <laughs> and putting... Let's put all humility aside for one moment. Historically, for my entire life, if I've wanted to be good at something, I have been able to just practice and be good at it. Like, it's very... Wow, real white guy energy there. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, again, I put humility aside, but like it, when I was a kid and going through high school and college, like if I prioritized something and said, I want to succeed at this, I almost without fail was able to succeed at something, right? And yes, privilege is involved. There was all kinds of reasons for that, but I don't have very many memories of being like, gosh, I wish I was good at this thing and I just can't get over this hump. And that's how I feel a lot of times about magic where it's like, I wish I could not make these mistakes and I just can't stop making them and I don't know why or how to fix it. I can't seem to get to the bottom of it. I mean, so, it, it is so difficult because it is, you're trying to improve in a space that is a zero-sum game. So you're like always fighting against this impossible pressure that you can never actually surmount, which I think is very different maybe from some of the other things you're talking about, whether it's like playing guitar and you can measure the difference between, oh, I wasn't able to play this song and then six months later I can do it very mm -hmm. easily or it took me this long to learn a new song. Or, you know, if you're doing illustrations or graphic design, you can like have that visual record of things you've made in the past and see clear improvement. Or much because, worse, you can have your blog that you run in college and ooh, see yeah. who get, what gets the most reblogs and likes and uh, social sure. media I mean, energy. that's another great example of <laughs> what like What gets where, the most internet doodads. Right, where this quantified thing makes me not have a fun experiences uh you know i was much more active on twitter when we were in college and 
that just wasn't rewarding or like a good way to value things was which tweet, which, you know, piece of art gets the most upvotes and the most likes and whatever. When it's like, oh, I just actually need to figure out what's important to me and focus on the right things. And yeah, that it's is- very easy to fall into like false reward systems right. where it's like, or I guess false like senses of value where I now am extremely cynical and actually think that like popular things are very often kind of bad. Oh, absolutely. For, for the most part. Or at part. least they're, you know, the, they are popular because they are approachable and easy to digest and have a simple hook. It's they're not often because popular they are... because they don't push people away more than they right. are especially meaningful to people. It's like you made this thing that goes down easy and that's why it's popular. And, right. And you got a little lucky in terms of like just making it viral or whatever. But this is very different when we're talking about Magic the Gathering, where we have a very concrete way to say this is success and this is not. And that's very different from seeing your own personal progress and seeing you being able to do a thing better because, I mean, it's just like your. I feel like maybe it's it's so easy for us to entangle what is important about people with their win rate, and that is what makes them valuable or makes You've them... You've said something like this to me before, and this is kind of what I wanted to get into, where yeah. you feel like skill at playing magic or perception in the community as a like good player is essential or like you know that's that's essentially how the community values people in in the magic community do you really feel that way i think that is absolutely a component i mean sam black walks into a room you're like oh that's sam black he's like an important person because he's Mm -hmm. really good at magic and i don't think that's like the only reason people value people but i think it is Absolutely a factor, or somebody right, but like you know, of... Josh Lee Kwai walks into a room, and it's not that Josh Lee Kwai is an especially great commander ah, player. But he doesn't play magic; he plays commander, <laughs> okay, a different yeah, okay, game. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. The professor, how about that? He's probably a pretty good magic player. I'm sure he's fine, but he's no Sam Black. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm. I, it's definitely not the only factor, and it is very different in different sort of facets of this community and the magic landscape, but I think that in portions of it, and in the past in portions of our local playgroup, I think that was definitely a thing, that the people that I looked up to were the people that were really good players, and I was interested in mastery of the game, so that was something that I wonder sure, if you're projecting that on other people, if, oh, because that's, that's what you looked up to, that's what you're assuming yeah, other people yeah. like, I don't know, I think that, I have no idea how good John Terrell is mm-hmm. at magic, I have no clue. But John has done so much for the Cube community with all of his organizing for KubeCon, all of his like very approachable, accessible videos about Cube design to get people into Cube, that I think he's very valued by the community, and none of that is associated with John's ability to for play sure. magic well. Just because I don't even know how good he is. Maybe John's amazing at magic, right? But he's got the, a spreadsheet like the this, point and is, it's all green. The point is, I don't know, and that's not a fact. It's not a factor, and I think in John's influence in the community. And like similarly, I think if you came out to Cube every night and you just lost all the time, a huge part of like the value you provide to this community is being that hub that makes this Cube community exist, right? Like being the one that's there every single Tuesday. Coming out every single Tuesday and losing constantly is a much better way to like be meaningful to the community than right. coming out every other Tuesday and winning constantly. Yeah, I mean, or to, to use another example, uh, I think Andrew McGreeny is like the the key example, or the, he's the epitome of this, where he will show up to a cube event and doesn't even want to play. He's like, here's a cube. I'm putting this down in front of you. I'm just going to like... I'm going to go drink. I mean, <laughs> well, a little bit of that, but he's going to hover around and, you know, facilitate and make sure everybody's got the tokens they need and has all their questions answered. So yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different ways that people value each other in this community. But I, I do think there is always that aspect of like, oh, like this person is somewhat visible, but oh, they're not that good. Is like a thing that could come up in a lot of conversations. But yeah, I mean, maybe that is just a lot of my own anxiety. I think it's part of it. And like, 
I do think part of it is in your head, and that's true of all of us. So it's really. all in all our heads. Sure, that's it's true. All just I mean, another great example I think is Mark construct. Rosewater, who obviously has done so much for this game, but by his own admission, is not a very good player. He's mm-hmm. like I. He's like I don't play to win almost ever i'm always playing to figure out how the game is functioning and so like i'm just not very good (laughs) so i do think part of it is just my fundamental very competitive nature which has been that's how i've always been and it's something i've always wrestled with because i don't i don't think i'm particularly hard on myself like knowing some of our friends that are very hard on themselves when they lose and feel like their self-worth is entirely associated with it i don't feel like i'm that brand of competitive but i do have high expectations for myself and I get really frustrated when I make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I actually don't think, and this is something that would be hard to actually test, but I really don't think that win rate is what matters. Like, what matters is me feeling like I don't know what's going on, right? Like, yeah. like if I think that something is going to play out one way and it plays out another way and I'm, like, caught off guard, then that's very frustrating. Or if I just make obvious mistakes, I am very frustrated at that because I'm like, well, I did all this work to draft this deck and I couldn't even play my stupid shock land before I attacked my territorial Kavu. What what are we doing here? The other part of it though is definitely, I have definitely felt this more concretely since recording things for YouTube and streaming and having people scrutinize my play more. And I don't think anybody comes to our channel to see excellent players, right? That's not why anybody's watching us play magic. Cause if you wanted to do that, there's a million other channels of players that are much more accomplished and successful than we are. So it's silly to, for me to like, feel scrutinized in that way but i mean definitely with this roto draft again i mentioned like i recorded a whole video talking about my predictions for my deck and went through everyone else's list talked about my weaknesses and strengths and i was actually kind of right most of the time in terms of where the problems were going to be just i thought the outcomes would be in my favor and they weren't but i definitely felt like yes being in the public eye has been part of it and the one thing i do have is specifically when it comes to card evaluation and like talking about how good is this card in this cube that is where I think people will be biased by how good of a player they think you are. I know there are some people who are, are if not. You, if you if you don't take Umazawa's Jite in the first two picks of a row draft, people are going to call you out oh, for it. Oh, come maybe, on. For example. Dan's not trying to call you out. Dan's a friend. We all love Dan. I mean, it's a great example. I think he generally wants to know what you're thinking because yeah. I think he values your perspective as a player. I don't think he's saying, like, why'd you f*** this up? I think he's just like, I want to know what was going through your head because... He's never played the Bun Magic Cube, I'm 90% sure. So he just might want to know like what's different about this environment and values your sort of perspective. But if you have that like insecurity, which I also have of like, I did this wrong and now everyone's going to call me out on it, then it kind of pollutes that entire interaction, right? It makes it so you can't have just a exchange of ideas. So anyway, that is definitely an exacerbating factor. The fact that like some of the magic I play now is essentially like performing for people is definitely adding to the stress of... Don't make dumb punts and like just do good at this thing that you that you value so highly, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's especially a, a weird disconnect is that we play a lot of magic, a lot of with big quotes. A lot of that playing is fiddling with stacks of cards on desks and fiddling with lists on Cube Cobra and like collecting cards and things like that. So we are like very engaged. and Maybe there is a disconnect that feels like we should be better players for the amount of time we spend on this game. Yeah, I think that's part of it, right? The number of messages I've posted to the Cube Talk Discord over the past six years or whatever, you would think I would be a master. And I am, you know, a fine. I'm a fine player. I'm okay, right? But don't you, you always just feel fine because it's always easiest to see the people that are above you and the people that are below you. And it it's harder to see the people that are far in the distance. Or you might even just not consider them as part of the sample group that you're considering in what you're in the middle of. Well, I mean, that's the thing is like, so I think 
if we try to make like an honest assessment across everyone that's ever played a game of Magic in all of history. Right, and where, do you, where are you drawing that line of what's the baseline? Is it anybody who's ever played a game of Magic, or is it people that come and play at least once a month or it's always easy for you to reframe it in a way that puts you in the middle. That's what I'm saying. Like I, most people that have played magic are bad. They had never got invested in the game. They never thought about it deeply. They never couldn't fall asleep because they were trying to think about some specific deck. They never went to the magic subreddit or magic discord or made it a social media account to talk about magic with other people. They just played the game every once in a while. Right. And so I think in terms of all magic players across all time, I'm like in this top upper crust of like people that play a lot I have a neighbor who is minimally invested in the game. He's got a couple kids. He can't, you know, come out and play with paper almost ever, but he likes to pop up arena and play for a half hour, you know, before bedtime every night or something. And that's a good reminder to me often of what so many magic players are and how I'm so much more invested and more experienced than most of those people. So yes, I'm holding myself to a high bar because in this, let's say top 5% of all people that have played magic, I'm somewhere in there probably because again, most people don't, take the game that seriously and it's so much easier to see the 4.9 percent of people that are above me because they're more publicly visible or prolific or whatever but um where are we going with this i'm getting so i'm getting so lost so this isn't making you happy this spreadsheet is no, just it's not reinforcing things that are not positive what are the things you still value self-improvement and growth and that's what yes. you want to focus on i want to be intentional about playing what are some of the moments that have made you that have like provided that satisfaction and how could you maybe track things going forward that are actually focusing on those meaningful outcomes great segue anthony because this is the next spreadsheet i've made and i want to ask you about what you think about it so it's obviously empty i've recorded no data in this uh part of this is that i I love ryan's suggestion of tracking my predicted record with the deck and the actual record i just seeing how close it was to my expectations the structure of this spreadsheet doesn't really allow for that. I have a row for each match, not a row for each draft. And so I can't predict the outcome of a specific match because I don't know what I'm playing against, right? I can predict vaguely the outcome of an entire draft. Say, if I'm going to play three matches against average decks each time, I expect to go 2-1 or whatever. There's nowhere to put that in the spreadsheet. So I want to track that as my primary thing. So I've got a predictions column here. I also think I should track... In this spreadsheet, I tracked the color of the decks I was playing. Ultimately, I think it was interesting to learn that there isn't really much of a preference for me as a player for one color or another. But at the end of the day, that's not useful. What's way more useful and only barely tracked here by the deck name I listed is what archetypes and themes am I playing? Am I having success playing aggro decks? Am I having success playing control decks? Am I having success playing combo? I don't know because that's not really recorded in this spreadsheet in the same way. So I also have a whole column here just to like describe my deck, right? What What is it trying to do? And then I have like an outcomes lesson learned column, which I'm hoping to record here in some way. And I, I'm intentionally trying to make this much less quantifiable and more qualifiable. So right. I don't, I'm not going to turn my predicted record and actual record into a number I can graph because there's fraught in so many ways. But what I do want to record in this column is how close was the outcome of this whole draft to what I expected, right? And that might be, the outcome was much worse than I expected because I got mana screwed in four games, right? And that just happens. And maybe that's even a thing to look at, like, uh, is my mana base for this deck wrong? Am I, am I constantly getting mana screwed in my three-color decks? And am I just, like, underestimating what mana fixing I need for decks like that? But this is what I'm thinking of trying to track. What do you think about these three things? Basically just, you know, I'm obviously, like, date the cube I'm playing, and then the archetype and theme of my deck, my predictions for how the draft will go. And predictions can be anything here, right? I'm thinking, like, I will lose if I play a really good aggro deck, or this deck is great, I expect it to 3-0, or my draft went off the rails, I expect to 0-3, or 
if my opponent has a turn one hand hate card, I will lose, or I can't beat a turn one Ragavan. Like, this could be anything in the predictions field. These are predictions that you would make about your, after the draft, but before games. Correct. And then outcome lessons learned would basically be the outcome of the entire draft and what I could potentially take away from it. What I'd really like to be able to do six months later, maybe we can talk about this in December, if I stick to this, is look back and see, like, did I actually learn something from any of these drafts? Because... This, again, is the challenge of magic. It's part of what makes it so fun. Okay, so what do I learn from my 1-4 with a mono-red aggro deck in, in Baby's First Cube? My hands were fine. I never got mana screwed. I got a little flooded a couple times. I actually got most flooded in the games I ended up winning, which is coincidence. I think my opponents just had the right answers at the right times. I don't know what to take away from that. There's so many places that could have gone wrong, right? Like, right. is mono-red aggro in that cube just not that good for a variety of reasons? Maybe. Did I actually have a bad version of the mono-red aggro deck because it requires key pieces that I just didn't have? Maybe. Did I just get unlucky? Maybe. Did my opponents just intentionally draft against an aggro deck and have the right answers because they were metagaming and successfully predicting what their opponents were going to be doing? Maybe. Did I just make a bunch of play mistakes? Was my deck actually great, like I thought it was, and I made a bunch of invisible punts where I should have played this three drop and I played that three drop, and if I had done it a little differently and been a little more skilled, I could have actually won all those matches. It's so hard to know what to learn from a given match or a given draft, and that's what I want to focus on. And honestly, what I really want to focus on, I want to have more fun. (laughs) I just want to have more fun playing this game which sounds so stupid so we should we should add another column that I, says, honestly did you have fun in this match and just I'm, put this i'm the doing frowny it. face and the smiley face <laughs> doing Are, it right now arena's had it figured out this whole time <laughs> this makes a lot of sense to me i think there's a lot of value just in the description column i think this is something that happens very often that just describing the thing helps a lot with understanding the thing and you know we talk about this with writing your cube description it is as much as a designer useful to the actual design process, just just to try and put into words what your goals so and expectations are. So even just talking through, this is my deck. It is about trying to do this. These are some key cards that contribute to this plan. I think that'll frame the way that you think about your decks a lot, just by having that like forced moment to describe the deck. The predictions, I think, is interesting. Uh, I'm not going to disagree with Ryan Sachs, but that I'm less confident in how that will, what kind of utility that will provide. Well, again, I think I'm less interested in... I'm not even sure exactly what Ryan was saying. I'm less interested in saying, like, I predict this record and it was instead this record, and more interested in, like, am I able to predict strengths of the deck, weaknesses of the deck? Right. Over, and I could even get to the end of the draft and say, like, okay, this deck did go, you know, 1-2, but I actually still think it was a really good deck because the places where I lost, I, you know, got really unlucky or whatever. I had to mull the four in, like, you know, a bunch of my games, right? Uh, I, I still think I could come out of this and have a prediction still feel true even if the like record doesn't necessarily support that sure and then i feel like this last section of the outcomes and lessons learned i wonder if i would split that up into two separate ideas one being what did i do successfully and what are things i've observed that i want to do differently in the future so i mean just to take maybe another concrete example from this weekend just talking about the way that i played against patrick in one of my matchups i made a lot of very clear mistakes or you know opportunities where i could have taken one of a few routes, and I went a route that really did not put me in a good situation, and then tried to very deliberately do it differently in the next game, and felt a lot better. And I think that those two things are different, sort of the experience of, here are lessons that I applied that were successful, and here's a lesson I want to apply next time. Does that difference make sense? I think it does, and it helps address what I could already expect would be a challenge of this, is I want this to be somewhat parsable once I have 
400 games in here, right? Mm-hmm. And be able to actually look. What I want to be able to do is look back and say, like, okay, I often feel better about my aggro decks than I actually should, right? right? Like, Or, like, those are the sort of trends I want to pick up on in my, like, overall abstract understanding of the game, which... I think it's appropriate to be looking at this qualitatively because, again, there's not going to be enough data for it to be quantifiably meaningful. Yeah. To, like, try and actually, like, bin these decks and to, like, you know, check a box that says this is an aggro deck and decide whether this deck I just drafted it counts as a Boolean binary aggro deck and then look at the end of the aggro deck records and, my and like, try and do all that, like, with actual quantifiable numbers I don't think makes a lot of sense. But just actually having, like, essentially like a journal, like, a you know, a, a diary of my cube games and how I'm progressing, what I think I'm learning, where I think my holes as a player are, is I think what I plan to do from here on out. This seems like a good plan. I, when you started doing the tracking, I was like, ah, maybe I should do that too. It'll turn into a podcast episode. And never do it for the content. I, I joke like, sometimes about doing it for the content, but never do it for the content. Yeah, and I like graphs, and so I was like, I felt a little bit... You could, is, you could have made is, a very cool spreadsheet. Guilt is too strong a word, but like, uh, I felt like I was not doing a thing which I could be doing. Um, I'm not saying I feel justified. Sim- simply, <laughs> why not simply just be a potted plant? <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. This is something I would be much more interested in doing, so maybe I will go along with this exercise with you. Cool. It'd be fun to talk about. I'm going to do it no matter what. I'll okay. at least commit to the next six months of it. I did basically six months of the more quantifiable tracking. So I'll commit to at least six months of this. And yeah, I mean, the goal here is I just, I want to be intentional about my playing and not just feel like I show up, I play, and then it all just becomes a vague sense that burns off in the ether, right? I want to actually take something concrete away from my playing of the game, which in the grand scheme of things is not that often, right? Compared to playing on arena, like for as much as I love this game, as much as I think about it, I don't play that often. So I want to like be intentional about that time. And also I want to try and track the things that actually matter. Whereas I think the first time around, I tracked the things that were easy to track. It's very easy to look at my deck and say, how many colors is it? It's very easy to look at my record and say, what was it? It's very easy to look at my opponent's name and look at the cube and like put all these like actual facts down. Those things I actually don't think are indicative of my goals, though. Like My goal is not have a better win rate. Because again, maybe the best way to have a good win rate is just to like draft aggro in every cube ever and just always force it. That's not going to in the long term, make me better at understanding the game or better at playing magic abstractly. That's just going to be like, yeah, and actually a lot of cubes you can just force aggro and a lot of opponents are going to stumble because they are new to the environment or they try to draft something cute and tricky. And all I'm saying is win rate doesn't actually matter. This is what actually matters. And I love your idea of tracking how much fun I had <laughs> via <laughs> via emojis. And I will definitely be doing that. Do, and that do, is the trend. Do, do you get that that's a joke from the arena thing? I am familiar with the arena interface okay. you're talking about, and the joke, right, is that they ask you if you were happy or sad, and everyone assumes behind the scenes the data is just if you win, you're happy, if you're sad, Cor- you lost. Correct, yeah. Yeah. That is actually my real goal, is that sometimes this, like, pressure does get to me, right? Like, the Roto Draft matches were not particularly fun. I was, like, really tryharding. They were recorded, so I was, like, thinking about the fact that this was going to be something people were going to watch. I made a bunch of predictions on video, which I was, as I was losing matches, thinking, like, well... Here's a place I was wrong that everyone's going to be able to look and see where I was wrong. Like, that was not particularly fun. And I don't want to have magic not be fun for me because that's the whole reason I play the game is I enjoy Magic the Gathering. I think it's really good to state that out loud. Do you enjoy <laughs> playing Magic the Gathering, Anthony? You know, it's up and down. <laughs> it's it's complicated. I mean, it is. It's, it's more fun when you're winning. And I haven't been winning a lot lately because we have been playing with a lot of other skilled players and in a challenging way to be honest 
I mean, honestly, I do think there's something to the fact that, like, you and I were playing a lot of matches this weekend and also hosting a lot. Like, yeah. our attention was pulled a lot of directions, and I was stretched very thin in terms of just, I had not slept that much and had done a bunch of hosting stuff, and then was like, you time playing to... playing a lot of Super Smash Brothers. Playing a lot of Super Smash Brothers. Then it was like, all right, time to sit down at 8.30 p.m. for a draft on a Friday after I've been up all day working and then hosting and then cooking and then running errands and... Yeah, I mean, I think that's... No one would suggest you do that before a high-stakes tournament, right? Everyone would say, get good sleep and, uh, you know, focus mm-hmm. on just the games you're going to play. So there's a lot of confounding factors. I had a lot of fun losing to Patrick in the Neoclassical Cube. I was talking a lot of shit to him. It was great. I kept making fun of him. He kept making fun of me. It was great. <laughs> uh, but it was just like, I, I did not feel bad about that match at all. Uh, I knew my deck was kind of shaky, so I didn't go in expecting to win. And then Patrick, frankly, played brilliantly in our third of three games. He was playing a burn deck. And I was playing this like janky artifact, Bulbosa Citadel kind of combo deck whose main win conditions were like Karn and a bunch of mana rocks and Bulbosa Citadel and attacking with them. And I had Zurin Orb in my deck, which was a very important piece against the burn deck. I also had a couple counter spells, uh, all taxing, like miscalculation and stuff. And Patrick in our third match, after he won one and I won one, just refused to play any burn spells until he had like four extra mana. He was like, I'm never getting caught by any because mm, uh, he's just like i just need to cast enough of these like this is this adds up to 21 he was like, he was like tempo does not matter and he's yeah. not playing aggressive like this yeah. game will go on to infinity turns he also kind of sussed out that i had very few win conditions and brought in a couple counter spells himself he was like a counter burn deck and he was just like i'm never gonna burn him until i've already countered all the things that matter and so like, we literally just played lands and passed the turn back like eight or nine times and i was like what's happening what what is in your hand why are you not casting anything i'm so confused <laughs> and he like totally like like out leveled me and it was it was really fun so i had fun losing that match that is what i want to do more of have fun losing and feel like i'm learning whether i'm winning or losing that sounds like a really important goal i also had great matches with patrick this weekend he played a mimic vet and i was like how the hell am i ever going to beat that mimic vet i will play a Phyrexian Metamorph, and I will have a Mimic Fat, and then we will figure out how this game goes. And then he still won, right? He did. Yeah. Uh, so I sideboarded in the green pack. I gotta say, Mimic Vat mirror match sounds like it absolute was, hell to I me. I mean, it was also wild, because then it's like, I felt pretty good, because I had more instant speed removal, so then there was an interesting moment where I was like, well, I can instant speed destroy his Archaeomancer on his turn so I can get the Archaeomancer and that would let me get back duress. For those so wondering, I could just try and duress him once a turn and that would be pretty good. But then he had a counterspell there. He won the first one. I sideboarded in a light green with Reclamation Did Sage. Did that pay off for you, by the way? Yep. Reclamation Sage was great uh, and the fixing was fine. Well, I say the fixing was fine. Let's go to game three where <laughs> <laughs> the fixing was... I kept a hand I shouldn't have where it's like it, I had some, you know, hand smoothing so... I was I just spent the first couple turns like casting some some hand smoothing and draw spells to try and draw into the the mana base I needed and he had cast Talrand and made seven drakes in the meantime. Mm, rude. Yeah. Rude TBH. Boy, Mimic Vat mirror matches. For those wondering if both players in a two player game have a Mimic Vat, the non-active player gets to actually tug a creature that dies under the Mimic Vat, which makes things very interesting in terms of when stuff dies. Especially if you have Wraths you, in your deck, and it's like, well, I sure as hell don't want to do that. You basically don't want things to die on your turn when you both have a Mimic Vat in play. What happens if multiple things die? I guess the active player can choose to tuck every creature oh in order. Oh my goodness. And then when they untuck with the next creature, does the non-active still, player still have a chance to choose, tuck it? You still choose them all. 
You still choose all the creatures. So they all cycle through the Mimic Fat, so they don't get a chance to go to your opponent's Mimic Fat. Is that true? It's fine. It works fine. Is that true? Like I think so. But if it cycles through, as the active player, all of your triggers go on the stack first, then all of the non-active players' triggers go on the stack. So I think it's a non-active player. You choose what order you want all of the dying creatures to go through your Mimic Fat. And any ones that come out and are not still tucked under it, I think do it's go under new, your opponent's. It's a new game object as soon as it switches zones. Oh, that's true. That yeah. is true. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it can't go under there anymore. You're right. This has been Rules Corner. It'd be really annoying in, like, Arena or something to actually say, make sure all of these go under there instead of just ignoring the trigger. Yeah, interesting. Mimic Fat would be really annoying in some contexts. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a card. <laughs> okay, that's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Different kind of episode today, but I think important. I, I hope people can... Obviously, I don't expect a lot of uh, empathy for the... I'm playing matches on YouTube and stream, and that is stressing me out. I think the majority of our listeners are probably not doing that. Honestly, it's 2023. Everybody's got their hustle on. Everybody's trying to be a content creator. That could be true. But I hope people can actually empathize with the idea of just, uh, you know, loving this game, feeling like you're not as good at it as you should be, and how to measure progress in a world where you don't play structured competitive magic, which we don't. The emoji column is key technology here. I'm going to refine this sheet a little bit, and I'll share a copy with you if you want to do the same thing. All right, do it. Are you going to share this previous spreadsheet with listeners so they can look at this graph? Uh, I'm not, mostly because it has a lot of people's personal information in it. I hmm. don't want my records against every single player to be known. I could anonymize all these names, but that's too much work. Uh, I'm not going to do it. Also, it has like the dates when I was specific places. I don't know. That's fair. I, I see <laughs> Parker ate your entire... Uh, yes, this year, Parker ate my entire... With lot with troll, that did in fact happen. Here's this note here for you. Your stupid monument loops and me forgetting. Oh, that's a long note. Yeah, let's see here. It gets mm-hmm. bigger when you look at it. Really not fun games. Punted in a super grindy board where was where he was just doing monument loops and I had almost no decisions to make and forgot about a stupid <laughs> stone cloaker exile things <laughs> from my graveyard and went for the win by sacrificing Sling Gang Lieutenant and his fodder and trying to loop it with my cobwalts. When I had stone cloaker, yeah, right, yeah, and, and had game, and had been exiling your graveyard. Three times a turn for the last three turns. Right. In a game where I had basically no f***ing decisions at all, I made the one bad one. <laughs> like, we were just staring at each other. You couldn't attack into my board because I had a million blood artist effects, and you had no evasion, and I couldn't do anything because you had a zillion chump blockers, and I did not have lethal by forcing you to chump block. It wasn't like enough creatures were going to die in combat. You were going to die immediately. So I had to keep up my blockers, and I was like, ooh, Macabwalt's Sling Game Lieutenant. That's 12 damage. I love those moments when you draw a card and you're like, aha, a new plan, and your brain just throws out all the really important context. Yeah, that's what happened there. Mm-hmm. I do like my love this deck notes, which actually end up being more about many colored decks than I would have guessed. The two decks I've loved the most this year, admittedly, decks I did not lose a match with, which probably correlated, probably it's correlated more fun there, when you win. was my, my five-color fast bond deck from my neoclassical keep a while ago. And then actually, if we rewind all the way back to... The first time we played Max's Cube on stream, the uh, Recruited Revelry Cube, I drafted this, like, Jund Seasons Pass Control deck, which I adored. And we only played that on stream, so I only played two matches with it, but just Mono Removal and Seasons Pass was so satisfying. That deck was really fun. So basically, the decks you like playing are four or five color land matters, weird, grindy, Life from the Loam decks. Neither of these decks had Life from the Loam in it. Would you have liked them with Life from the Loam in them? I mean, Seasons Pass doesn't care about lands. I mean, it gets one back, but it doesn't. It's not a lands matter deck. It's just a really cool win condition for like a grindy control deck that's in double green, which means you have to like get creative because 
Green does not have a lot of gray spells to recur with Seasons Pass, so it's like a double green card that asks you to play other colors. Anyway, thanks for tuning into this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. All of our magic is produced by D. All of our magic? Did I say that? I think I said magic. Boy, still tired from this weekend, it turns out. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by me doing a little quantified self-exercise in my cube games for six months and then realizing that it is not fun and magic should be about fun. Find the fun, Anthony. And I hope you listeners out there are also having fun playing Magic the Gathering (laughs) instead of thinking too hard about it and tracking stuff that isn't fun about yourself. Should the title of this episode be, Is Magic the Gathering Fun? (laughs) No, I think that's going to be a different episode. (laughs) You have another one in the chamber for Is Magic the Gathering Fun? Uh Uh-huh.